0: Findings Podcast, where financial research, policy, and practice meet. I am your host, Jonathan Ferguson. Our episodes contain interviews with researchers and discuss evidence-based strategies that policymakers and practitioners can implement to strengthen financial well-being for individuals at all stages of life. For this episode, we have an interview with Dr. Stephanie Moulton, a professor and the Associate Dean for Faculty and Research in the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University. Dr. Moulton specializes in the design, implementation, and evaluation of housing and consumer finance policies and programs with an emphasis on vulnerable populations. She has published more than 40 journal articles, a book, and several book chapters. We will discuss Stephanie's research project titled The COVID-19 Pandemic in Older Adults' Employment and Economic Security, Insights from Earning and Credit Panel Data. Thanks for joining us today, Stephanie.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: It's it's fantastic to have you here. And we get started with our first question that I ask everyone. That very first question is more about you and what has been a financial aha moment in your life.
1: Yeah, no, this was actually a really interesting question. It made me reflect a bit. And I remembered about a decade ago, I heard um, Eldar Shafir give a talk where he was talking about a suitcase metaphor to describe people's budgeting behaviors and financial behaviors. It's also in his book on scarcity. But he says that the wealthy have a big suitcase, which allows them to pack modest items casually, and then the poor have a small suitcase, which must be packed intently and with great care. So the, the packer of the small suitcase has to carefully consider the size of each new item. They have to consider what can be removed every time they want to put something in. Whereas the wealthy people who have this big suitcase can just kind of throw everything in you might need for the trip. You don't know if you're going to need it or not, but it's all good. I can I can figure it out later. And it really resonated with me. And it made me think back on my own life and circumstances. Uh, and then it also kind of affects how I think about uh, studying financial behaviors today. So when I was just starting out, I had it, my first daughter when I was, in, I was still an undergraduate student actually in college. My husband and I worked multiple minimum wage jobs trying to make ends meet. And I remember at the time, like budgeting was so critical to me. I was in charge of her budget. And I had to watch where every single penny went. And I knew our budget down to, you know, $801 was what we had that month. And that's what we had to spend the entire month. And I knew where every penny came in and where every penny went out. And I think it, you know, it was just a small taste of what many households deal with every day, all of the time with no reprieve. So I'm really privileged now to have a good job that pays me well, where I don't have to live penny to penny. But those lessons that I learned then really kind of transform and stick with me. And I and I often think, you know, I don't keep the kind of budget today that I kept then. And you could say I'm more educated today. I know more today. I should be doing that. I was a much better budgeter back as an undergraduate student when I had my daughter and I had to live on that $801 whatever dollars it was a month than I am today as a, as a, as a university professor. And so, you know, that lesson really taught me, you know, I study, some of what I study deals with people that that work on financial education and counseling, for example. And while I think that's important, and, and, and of course, it's great to help people learn to manage their money. Is sometimes it feels like replacing the burden on people who are already probably doing this better than <laughs> most people in order to just make it, right? Um, and, and, and these are already people that are stretched incredibly thin, and they tend to be expert financial planners and figuring out how to make it work for them. And so, you know, as I think about how I approach this issue and, and in topics, topics of like financial equity and inclusion and just financial education, counseling, whatever it might be, I really prefer strategies that try to increase the size of the suitcase, if you will. So how can we increase income? How can we increase wealth? How can we reduce expenses? How can we increase the size of the suitcase rather than just trying to teach people how to be better packers, <laughs> if that makes sense? Um, and, and Shafir, his book is all about becoming a better packer and how do we help people become better packers? But you know, to me, I think, we, well, we fundamentally also need to change the size of the suitcase. And so that's kind of something that I think uh, sticks with me in, in, in what I do.
0: Wow, that's a great analogy. And I haven't heard that one before, but it does sum it up really well.
1: Yeah. And
0: yeah. and you're I think a hundred percent correct in that financial education and counseling is clearly critically important for everyone. But sometimes with folks who are of limited means, they've been forced to just be more efficient with their money and actually manage it well. And that's mm-hmm. not the primary challenge. The primary challenge is a more systemic, bigger issue and that made things tougher so i appreciate that answer and i hadn't heard that suitcase analogy before so that's
1: yeah no it it sticks with me all the time and i and again back to kind of this i feel like we oftentimes put more burden and and have more expectations of people that have smaller suitcases you know and it's it's I don't know. It's not something that they necessarily chose to have. It just happens to be that the, the suitcase that they they have, and 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 the, and for those of us that have giant suitcases, that can you know have the luxury of figuring things out. It's it's uh, you know very different.
0: Yeah, great answer. All right, so let's move on to our next question, which is if you would tell us a little bit about your academic background and professional resume.
1: Yeah, sure. So those two things are actually really intertwined for me. So um, my professional experience and my academic background kind of go hand in hand. So Um, You know, I have a bachelor's degree in social work, actually, Um, so I wanted to solve poverty (laughs) in my lifetime, but I started out as a social worker um, working on the ground, and I actually, my first job was for a nonprofit housing organization after I completed my undergraduate degree, and I worked there for five years. I, I was placed there as an intern while I was doing my undergraduate degree, and then I stayed on for five years, and I often tell my students that everything that I research today literally comes back to those five years that I spent working at that nonprofit. And I don't know if that says something about me in a sense that I'm like, you know, I, I if it's, you, you know what you know and you sort of stick with it, um, or if that's a generalizable thing that others could say, uh, I'm not sure, but it was just, I think it had such a profound impact on me, those five years um, working as a social worker, that I now feel like those are the problems that the things that I studied, the things that I that I saw come to life during those five years Those are the challenges that I want to address. We had a a really amazing uh, executive director of the nonprofit that I worked at, and it was just she and I for a while. And we were doing everything from homeownership programs to try to get people into homes, to developing new rental housing, trying to create affordable rental housing programs, to all sorts of uh, financial education and counseling programs, to savings programs. We even did credit counseling. We did, I did reverse mortgage counseling. So literally everything I study today comes back to those five years and the people that I met during those times working in those programs. And you know, I still see and and everything that I do, I kind of see the faces of the people that I was working with. And those, you know, it's now been over twenty years ago, <laughs> um, but I still see that. And so I was really, you know, while I enjoyed my job a lot, uh, I was really wanting to make system change. So this. You know, I was, I was working, it was the beginning of 2000, um, that the housing market was just booming, but we could see the writing on the wall. It was around 2004 that things were, you know, not, not doing so great. And actually some of the affordable programs we would create were having trouble. Um, we were having trouble competing with some of the private market programs that were out there. And, you know, we felt like people were, were getting a bad deal and some of the mortgages that they were getting, but it was just really hard the way the system was created, to compete with a product that was good in that environment. And so it really motivated me to want to kind of be part of policy change and and make systematic change. Also, you know, just seeing the same issues again and again, and realizing that, you know, you can do so much within the system, you know, as a social worker, for example, but sometimes you fundamentally need to change the system. And in order to change the system, I needed to have different tools. And so going back and getting my PhD in public policy and management gave me different tools, And gave me a different kind of a platform through which I could try to affect change. Um, And I still admire uh, more than anything. I think social workers are just, uh, you know, I don't think this world could could operate without social workers. So I don't regret those five years at all. But I do think, you know, now having that different voice, having that different platform, going back, I went to Indiana University, got my Ph.D. in public policy and management, graduated from there in 2008 and have since been working at Ohio State University as a professor and study lots of issues related to um, financial equity and financially vulnerable households in particular. So really, again, a lot of that comes back to those years working, but uh, kind of taking that to a different level and a different platform through my academic career.
0: I think it's rare to see someone who has like the academic, uh, more global experience, like the changing and research and and that kind of thing. But then also have the practitioner experience working with the clients there. So I don't know if you've ever considered yourself to be a unicorn, but it sounds unicorn-ish <laughs> <laughs> to me. And I think it likely serves you really well being able to see both ends of it. Uh, so the next question for you is what motivated you to complete this research?
1: So, you know, uh, much of my research, no surprise, it focuses on financially vulnerable individuals. And you know I think about this in, in a life cycle perspective. So some of the individuals I focus on are just getting started. They're just starting out their their lives. and, and oftentimes you know first generation home home buyers is is a, is an area of research that I've I've done a lot with um, and and focusing on that transition into that kind of first first home. Uh, I also look at people that are buried under the weight of credit card debt. So maybe they're um you know, they've gotten their first job, they're working. um, they maybe even own a home, but they're now getting saddled with debt. and 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 what are the different options available to them. But then another area, of kind of making the life course perspective there, I deal a lot with older adults as well. And I focus on, particularly, again, older adults with limited incomes or older adults who have that small suitcase that have to try to figure out how they're going to make ends meet um, in retirement. Oftentimes, Social Security income is their only income. Um, maybe they have a little bit of wage earnings. And in fact, that's what this paper is focusing on. Um, you know, they might be working a little bit to supplement that Social Security check that they get, but they don't have a big pension. They don't have a lot of retirement wealth. In fact, their, their primary or only savings is the equity in their home. <laughs> and other than that, they really have not much of, a, of savings account to their name. So social security check and maybe a bit of wage income to help supplement it. And that's pretty much it. And so my colleagues and I were researching, we had about, we have about a decade long, maybe a little bit longer now research stream that we've been focusing on the financial lives of older adults. Uh, and we've been particularly focused on, you know, how these older adults are using housing wealth and how they're using consumer debt to make ends meet and then the consequences of those things. Um, so the consequences of using consumer data, using housing well to make ends meet for your health and well-being. So we had this really robust kind of research stream going that we were working on this, and then the pandemic hit. And when the pandemic hit, there was a lot of concern raised about what this was going to mean for older adults, both in terms of... Obviously, their physical health, Um, you know, we we worry about they were more susceptible to the actual disease of COVID-19 than than younger adults. Um, So the probability of death, mortality um, or just sickness was greater for older adults. But then there's also this um, the the financial consequences of COVID-19 for older adults. And there was some emerging evidence coming out that older adults, like right in the beginning of the pandemic, there's some pretty dramatic pictures that show this drop in labor force participation. Um, so among older adults, so think about an older adult that might be supplementing their social security check working at Walmart as a greeter, or you know working at a laundromat, or working somewhere to make some extra money. So among older adults that were age th- uh, 65 and older that were in the labor force um, when the pandemic hit, The unemployment rate rose from 3% in 2019 to 16% in April 2020. And so an additional 11% of households age 65 and older were exiting the labor force through 2020. Uh, And actually, this was the group, if we looked at different age groups, this was the group, you know, the youngest adults and the oldest adults saw the biggest exits from the labor force immediately when, when the pandemic hit. And so we were trying to understand what does this mean, you know, on one hand, maybe these are temporary exits, maybe that maybe folks will get right back to work, you know, maybe they're going to be okay, because, you know, they're going to reduce consumption too. So think about, you know, we all kind of cut back, we didn't go out to eat, we didn't. So maybe it's going to be okay, maybe, maybe this won't be a problem. Um, There were also a lot of increases in government benefits, although some of those are targeted at younger households with kids, but there were still, you know, if they could file for an unemployment claim, um, and and again, we didn't know how often they were doing that, but but if they were doing that, then that could help supplement and unemployment benefits were more generous And then there were also these private creditor forbearances that we were really interested in whether that was helping older adults. So creditors were previously, you might've been delinquent on your debt if you couldn't make a payment. And so um, you'd be in serious trouble if you lost income, you lost your wages and you couldn't make your mortgage payment, for example. Uh, there was this generous mortgage forbearance happening where older adults, anybody could could not make their mortgage payment and they wouldn't be delinquent. So, you know, it really was this quandary for us about what, what happens to these, these older adults that are losing their jobs or, or exiting, they're probably more likely voluntarily exiting um, the labor force. Uh, how are they doing and who are they? Um, And so we had kind of two, two main questions, really those, how are they doing and who are they or who are they and how are they doing? So the first one was, you know, are, are the people that are exiting, are they more financially vulnerable or was it like the, the people that are better off that just chose to exit and the financially vulnerable stayed in the labor force? So we didn't know that was a first question. And then the second order question was whether the older adults that left the labor force um during the pandemic experienced more economic insecurity than adults that might have left the labor force in pre-pandemic times so we kind of wanted to compare we know older adults leave the labor force like that's a known that's a known fact like <laughs> people retire at some point so obviously people are going to leave the labor force during this period but are the extra leavers the, that additional group that's leaving because of the covid period and the special things about the covid period how is that group different from the levers in, in what we would call, quote, quote, normal times or pre-COVID times? So uh, the levers and pre-COVID times are going to look a particular way. How do the levers in the, in the post-COVID times look relative to the pre-COVID times? So we actually had, uh, we have some pretty unique data that we've been putting together to study financial behaviors of, of people for a while. Um, and in Ohio, we have a, a unique data set that combines credit data, quarterly credit data, with labor force uh, and wage and income data. Uh, and so this allows us, we had a sample of about a million older adults, adults age 50 and older in Ohio, and we can follow quarterly what's happening with their wages and also what's happening with their financial outcomes using credit data. And we did that for a group of people that, you know st- we look at them starting in t- uh, baseline in 2020 right before COVID hits, and we follow them for 15 months after COVID. But then we want to say, okay, if we just look at that period, we're going to miss out on whether what we're observing is just who leaves the labor force, or is it something about COVID? So then we construct a similar kind of uh, a sample where we had people that were working in January 2018. For example, we have a baseline of January 2018, and we follow them for 15 months later before COVID. And then we can kind of see older adults that were working and leave the labor force in the pre-COVID times. Older adults that were working and leave the labor force in post-COVID times, and then kind of net out those COVID era differences, if you will, to figure out are they more financially vulnerable now, or are they better off? Uh, and then what what happens to them afterwards? Are we seeing any more indicators that that COVID era exits were associated with more financial distress or less than than pre-COVID uh, era exits?
0: Well, that's certainly a very interesting. Set of questions, I had lots of little micro questions pop up in my head just as you were going through all that because there are I guess uh many pieces that impact the lives of older adults. So given all that, I'm curious, were there any specific constraints or limits to the research that you all that you all found?
1: This is Ohio, <laughs> right? So we do have um you know, really rich data that allows us to kind of see the financial lives of people in a way that you can't see necessarily in other data sets, and kind of in real time, to some extent, at least relative to, you know, waiting for a big survey, um, like the health and retirement studies, an amazing survey, but it often takes years to get the data, there's a leg, and we needed quick data to be able to inform, you know, what was happening during COVID. It's Ohio, and, um, you know, Ohio isn't California, Ohio isn't Florida, Ohio isn't Um, Nebraska and Ohio isn't Boston, like it's, you know, it's, it's Ohio. Um, But, you know, we do look like the, the, the averages in the U S pretty much look like Ohio. So if we look at the average, uh, U.S. population. We have a great mix of urban and rural areas in Ohio. Um, we actually are, I think, the most urban areas per, cap- per capita in Ohio. You may not think about that, but we actually have quite a few urban areas. We also have Appalachian and rural areas in Ohio. So, you know, it really is kind of a microcosm, but that is definitely a limitation. You know, and the other limitation, I would say, while it's, you know, in some ways, it- it's nice to have administrative data for a couple of reasons. So our data is all administrative data. We're using um, credit data and we're using wage data, both that are being reported for other purposes. They weren't collected for this research. They were, you know, credit report data is collected on everybody. And then wage data is is data that's being reported to the state Department of Job and Family Services for tax purposes. Um, So on the positive side, we don't have to Bug people. We don't have to enter, like be be another, you know, intrusive person in their lives. All of our data is de-identified. So we don't have any way to know who they are. So we're protecting that confidentiality. So in, in that way, it's less invasive than perhaps some survey data. And, and we can observe things that, you know, typically you have to rely on recollection for. So we can actually see, you no, know, they lost $23 that month and their credit score went up four points. And, you know, so you can actually really kind of precisely see things. On the other hand, you don't know why they occur, and we don't know what it, you know, so for example, you know, we might see an older adult was working, they no longer work, and they didn't, you know, and they still aren't back as of the end of our study period. Was that a choice? Was that something that they deliberately did, or was that something they were forced to do? We don't know. Um, We can see if they filed an unemployment claim, so we, we do that to try to kind of parse out, was this a voluntary exit, or was this something involuntary? But we really don't know. I mean, they could even if they didn't file an unemployment claim, it could have still been an involuntary exit. They just decided not to bother with an unemployment claim. So, you know, some of the why questions, why do people do these things? Survey data, qualitative research are much better at answering those things than um than this administrative data. But the administrative data, you know, have has its benefits of, you know, being able to see this really fine increment kind of um, look into people's lives without being quite as invasive.
0: Yeah, the administrative stuff always, to me, seemed like a, a great flashlight to know where to look Yeah, um, for the follow-up for the qualitative, like, why questions. Absolutely. Uh, but it's hard to start off asking why when you don't know what to ask why about. So it's a great entry point step that provides a good overview, but then obviously follow up uh to learn more to get more of that information is very helpful. You mentioned the two the two uh areas uh that you all were looking to learn more about. What did the research find? I'm so curious to learn to yeah. learn more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um you know we have kind of two main findings that parallel that that research. So the the questions I mentioned so you know, I said we weren't sure who was more likely to leave during COVID. Is it going to be the the people that are better off or is it going to be the people that are more vulnerable? Um, We actually did find that it was the more financially vulnerable that were more likely to have these COVID exits. Um, So the excess exits were associated with more financially vulnerable individuals on a couple of different dimensions. So one dimension Uh, simply age, so the oldest older adults. So in in our study, those age 67 and older, um, relative to those age 50 to 66 had more excess exits In the first 15 months during the COVID pandemic, um, which which probably makes sense if you think about people, you know, 67 is the eligibility age for full retirement benefits, possible there were some trade-offs going on there. Um, It's also possible a lot more concern about susceptibility to the COVID disease itself um, among the oldest adults. And so um, the oldest adults were were more likely to exit. We also noticed that um, the people that exited during COVID, the excess exits they were more vulnerable in credit and wage characteristics too. So they had lower credit scores, they had less access to credit and lower wages compared to older adults who exited the labor force in pre-COVID periods. So for example, labor force exits are typically higher among people with lower credit scores. We saw that in both periods. So, you know, people with lower credit scores actually work shorter um, or, or exit sooner, what we found was that it was actually 10 times larger credit score factor on leaving the labor force uh, during the COVID period, uh, the the, Q, the first quarter of the COVID period than in pre-COVID periods. And and this may suggest, you know, again, we don't know why, <laughs> got to do some qualitative research, got to do some asking people to figure out why, but you know, these are the individuals that are potentially the most vulnerable, financially vulnerable that don't have that buffer, that um credit cushion potentially as much because they have lower scores more likely to leave. It could be the kinds of jobs that they were working in, although we do have um, the type of job. And so we can look at that a little bit, but it could also be something about their financial lives and and what they need to do to to kind of make ends meet when this crisis hits, Um, they may be more vulnerable. And so um, those those individuals that have the lower credit scores were were more likely uh, to leave. So that actually is, you know, was was quite concerning on that side. Um, But that leads to the second set of conclusions that we found. And so you know, we were worried then after finding that, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen to the you know, the financial outcomes of individuals that then left if these were already the more vulnerable people? And we did see that in general, the people that left the labor force uh, after the older adults leave the labor force pre post COVID time, you do see a slight reduction in credit score, a slight increase in payment uh, delinquencies. But we actually found that that was muted during the COVID period. I think a lot of that had to do with the generous forbearance programs. And I'll tell you why. So. We actually saw that older adults who left the labor force during COVID were more likely to fall behind on their debt payments than people that left before COVID. So that's a signal that they were having, having trouble. We can see whether they were making their payments more likely to miss their debt payments. Think of mortgage payments being one of the main ones for older adults. However, they were not more likely to be seriously delinquent and there were much they they we can't see forbearance before COVID because forbearance didn't exist before COVID. But there's a lot of individuals that ended up in forbearance on their on their on their debt. So they have this spike in, in missing their mortgage payments and missing their auto payments. But we also see evidence that they get this this forbearance that kind of prevents them from being counted as delinquent. And so any hit to the credit score that might normally happen um, with a with a typical kind of labor market exit is actually buffered because of this kind of generous forbearance policies um, that we saw in place. And of course, there's other things that we can't observe. We observe forbearance. We can observe some of the other policies that were also in place at the time that might have helped buffer that. Um, but we think the fact that we see an increase in delinquencies, so it's not like they're not missing their payments. If, let's say it was just generous income supports or reduced consumption that propped up their credit score, then you probably wouldn't see that increase in delinquencies or missed payments. Uh, but we're still seeing the missed payments occur, but then, and, and actually more so during COVID, but you're seeing a lot of forbearance. And so the the, the effect of credits on credit score gets muted and they end up uh, actually being better off uh, in terms of their, their credit position after uh, leaving the labor force during COVID than pre-COVID times.
0: We've gone through some of the high points and some of the key findings. Um, what do you think the implications of these research findings are? In short, so what and now what?
1: So you know, I think there's a there's there's more appetite to to discuss this today than there was before COVID. So maybe a silver lining to come out of COVID is that we've recognized that there are ways that we can perhaps build in for people that have an income shock. If we know it's gonna be transitory, if we know it's a temporary bump in their income, is there a way we can stabilize their debt payments during that period so they don't spiral down? Um, Particularly for something like a mortgage or a student loan, um, pretty substantial debt. uh, Is there a way that we can think about kind of building this into mortgage contracts moving forward, if you will? And there's various ways that we can do that. So we can do it in a way that obviously it has to be priced to some extent. However, if we can show that we actually reduced, you know, it's not a good thing when mortgages foreclose. It's not a good thing when mortgages default. It's not a good thing when mortgages prepay before they're supposed to prepay from a market perspective or from a consumer perspective. So, you know, if this actually ends up not just helping the consumer, but it actually ends up preventing a spiral of default delinquency, costly, um, you know, ramifications for the market, then, it, you know, of course, you know, we have to pay for the forbearance in some way, but maybe we don't have to pay as much as we think we do, um, because there's actually a market case to be made for it. Um, you can also think about kind of insurance products are really great at this. And there's ways that you could bake in an insurance product um, that would help uh, cover that 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 spell of a mispayment. Actually, Massachusetts Housing has something like this that they've been doing for years called MI Plus. It's for all of their low and moderate income borrowers. And basically, You know, they know that we're putting individuals into homes who potentially have uh, lower incomes and potentially have more income volatility. So we're going to build right into that product, not just mortgage insurance for the lender, but mortgage insurance for the borrower. And all of their borrowers, then if they miss a payment, they get like a six month window um, or I'm sorry, if they miss a, if they they lose income, they have up to six months to kind of regain their income and get their footing back without being counted as delinquent on the loan. So it's sort of like in Pennsylvania, I believe, had something similar. You know, there's these little pilots that were happening before in pockets. But I think that this kind of widespread adoption um showed us the kind of the importance of thinking about that more systematically uh, and and how can we you know not just focus on not that you know increasing benefits during a time of of distress is also really important but there's also ways on the back end to kind of increase um, the way we think about or change the way we think about um, debt programs and, and debt payments in times of distress. So that's one I think implication. The other one we stopped our study, this particular study went through June of 2021. We are right now going through December of 2021, and, and we're going to hopefully be getting data to continue to go forward. I worry about, you know, we were seeing things were okay as of June 2021. So as of June 2021, like I said, those older adults, you know, they weren't um, worse off per se than the, the people that had left the labor force pre pre-pandemic. And if anything, maybe their credit looked like it was being uh, better off in some ways, uh, some some indicators like credit score. Um, But I do worry about what's, what about the longer term effects for that group? So there've been some other studies that have shown that, you know, the the labor force participation rates have rebounded for many age groups, but they, and the older adults came back, but they're still below pre-pandemic levels. So, um, and that may be okay. It may just be um, older adults that were on the verge of retirement retired and, are doing just fine now and are financially um, stable. But as we you know, are experiencing inflation and household budgets might be tightening, I think it's important to not jump to the conclusion that look, everybody was fine, that those, those COVID exits, these papers show, everything's great, um, let's move on. I think that there's, because this has become, you know, uh, it hasn't resolved itself completely, the older adults are still more likely to be out of the labor force. I think we need to keep monitoring that and and monitoring the financial health of those older adults and and the implications of that down the, down the line.
0: Yes. Continued focus on this would be fantastic. And I, I for one would be incredibly happy to see um, mortgage changes in in a way that enables the consumer to be protected in ways similar to how the lender is, Um, you know, uh, private mortgage insurance and the mortgage insurance premium, those things are are great in in that they, they do provide some security to the overall system um, mm-hmm. in working, but it would be nice to also have some of that security built in in a way that's affordable and manageable uh, for people who might experience tough times to kind of carry them through those. And right now, I think that's likely a gap. Um, at least on a broad scale. I think if this research speaks directly to that, it would only be beneficial for not just those consumers, but the entire system. If we elevate the consumers, hopefully we elevate the entire system. Thanks so much for joining us again.
1: Well, thank you so much for allowing me to share the research and and talk to your listeners. And um, yeah, this is a great opportunity. Thank you.
0: Please follow our podcast on your podcast app to remain updated on the latest work from the UW-Madison Retirement and Disability Research Center. You can also visit our center on the web at cfsrdrc.wisc.edu. There, you'll find our latest news, publications, and webinars. Until our next episode, let's all keep doing our best to support equity and financial security.